You are listening to the Farm to Fork podcast, the show that was created for food manufacturers. Each week, we'll investigate into the food industry and dive a little bit deeper with the latest leaders in technology and innovation. Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Andy. And we're from Carlisle Technology. Today's guests are Yadira and Bree from New Harvest. New Harvest is at the forefront of cellular agriculture, a revolutionary field that uses biotechnology to cultivate animal products without the need for traditional farming. Yadira and Bree, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourselves and the organization that you're representing today? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Yadira Tejera Saldana, and I'm one of the three directors of Responsible Research and Innovation at New Harvest. My background is pretty interesting. I did food safety in Mexico. I'm originally from Mexico City. And after that, I decided to focus on food safety. So I did a master's in uh, the Netherlands. And after that, I decided that I wanted to go and do a PhD. So I went to Canada for that. And I've been living in Canada for uh, a good chunk of my life, maybe like 12 years now. So I've been focusing on food safety, and but I've also been interested in the intersection of science and the social implications of the technologies that we develop as scientists in the lab and how they will affect or how they will have consequences in, in the life of, of every human. So that's me. And at New Harvest, I've been looking at developing the cellular agriculture ecosystem in Canada mostly and trying to create networks of different stakeholders and trying to provide opportunities for everyone to interact and to understand the opportunities that we have in Canada for this novel technology, but also the challenges that solar agriculture can face. That's perfect. Thank you so much for that introduction, Yadir, and happy to have you on the podcast with us today. How about yourself, Bree? Hi, yes. So um, I am our U.S. Director of Responsible Research and Innovation, and my background is actually in tissue engineering, so kind of the scientific technology that's being used to create cultured meat products. And I started my career in the medical side of that field. So I studied in my undergraduate degree, culturing cartilage tissue for uh, patients that might have arthritis. And in my PhD, which I did at Tufts University in Boston, um, I was studying cardiac tissue engineering. So heart muscle tissue, and again, with the long-term goal of um, using that to treat heart attacks. And I had kind of a bit of a, a shift halfway through my PhD and really wanting to focus my career on sustainability-related work and ended up finding food as what I was most passionate about and really kind of stumbled into this field, but using my background in tissue engineering and applying that to sustainable foods, at least that's what we hope. And so in my role at New Harvest, I, I try to apply that scientific background to the field at large and ensuring that the technology is stewarded in a direction that has the positive impacts that we want. So our mission is to maximize the positive impacts of cellular agriculture. So that means, again, these technologies have a lot of potential benefits for sustainability, for animal welfare, for human health, but none of those are 
guaranteed. Um, they're not inherent to technological progress. The technology must be stewarded in that direction. And so a lot of our work revolves around that idea of looking at the big picture of this technology. So my role, I, um, in addition to running all of our US-focused work, I also run our research grants program, which is primarily a fellowship for PhD students and postdocs around the world who are some of the first at their university or lab that are doing this type of research and trying to develop the future leaders of the field, both in that technological side, but also in kind of the broader, how do we implement those technologies into society? Would you say that New Harvest is a research company or are you a corporation or like, where do you guys find yourselves? We have a really hard time defining our work. Recently, we've been using this concept of a field building organization because really when New Harvest started two decades ago, the field just didn't exist. It was science fiction still. And so um, how do we build a field from scratch and ensure that it has the many different facets that you need from talent, uh, which the fellowship looks at a lot, to uh, infrastructure. So we also are looking at like what sort of shared infrastructure does this field need to kind of um, standards and guidelines around what should the impacts of this technology be. So like, so I mean, it's not like it's a technical term, but field building organization is one that we like to use to kind of get at that whole picture. Yeah. And I think something important to highlight is that as a nonprofit, we are independent. So we don't really support only one aspect of the, of the ecosystem, but we try to support all of them. And we actually like to be like a convener. So we want to provide like a platform where we can bring all these diverse voices to talk about what are they concerned about the technology? What are the opportunities that they see or the benefits that they see? And having also these critical conversations, not only looking at the positive, but also looking at the potential uh, negative effects that the technology can have. And all of these are super important when we're talking about an emerging technology so that we can ensure that all the different players have all the information that they need to actually make informed decisions. Yeah, and I'll add, I think a term I'd stay away from is an industry advocacy org. And that's something a lot of people ask if we are, or they'll come to us and be nervous about saying something negative. But I think something I love about New Harvest is we don't shy away from those negatives. Like uh, GDR mentioned, like those are so important to talk about. So let's put that right out there in the open and discuss those potential negatives. And what can we do as a field now to help ensure that we don't see that happen? I think that's really important because it's such a new field. Like you said, there's probably a lot of people that are curious and nervous and there's probably stigma that's attached to it. And to be able to be open and actually have real conversations about what exactly is cellular agriculture, I think will help really develop that field and address people's concerns really well. Exactly. It's more like embracing all the different aspects of the technology. Absolutely. Well, thanks for that introduction, Brie. Also happy to have you with us on the podcast as well, too. That was excellent. And thank you both for that sort of joint statement, clarifying and summarizing where New Harvest falls within the industry and what the mission statement and value proposition really is. So to kind of wheel it back now to the history and overall context of the episode, let's talk about how and when did agri cellular agriculture get started? And you know, what were the main drivers in developing cellular agriculture? Okay, um, so the industry has kind of been around in concept for a little while, and, and like I said, it pulls a lot of the technology from the medical field. So this idea of tissue engineering has been around in the medical field for 
many decades now. And so we're kind of pulling that in. There's also other components of cellular agriculture. If you look at it broadly as the production of agricultural products using cell cultures, you also have what we call precision fermentation. And that's using microorganisms like yeast to produce an individual protein of some sort. And, and we've seen that actually in our food system and medical system for decades. So we've been producing rennet, a component of cheese making through that process. Jadira, you might remember the exact time period, but for decades. Um, and also insulin for diabetes has been produced that way for a while. So these technologies have existed for a little while. Their application to food as like a direct animal replacement, I'd say is more recent in the last couple of decades. And that really came out of some work that was done by Mark Post, who did kind of the world's first cultured hamburger, and then it really kind of exploded from there. An interesting aspect of that history is it really got started primarily in the startup world, like venture capital funding was much more readily available early on. So what we saw was a huge boom in startup companies working in this space. Something else important to mention and retouch on, on it a bit is that Cellular agriculture is like an umbrella term that we use to include what culture meat is, that is using tissue engineering, but also using precision fermentation. And precision fermentation has been a technology that we've been using more. Fermentation itself is something that we've been using more in the food industry, for example, with beer production, for example. And then starting to use those uh, microorganisms or modify more microorganisms to produce specific ingredients like renin or insulin came up later on. And it was mostly because we needed to increase the production of these ingredients and also their original source were animals. And it was really variable, the type of quality of these ingredients as well. So they needed to figure out a way to produce them in a more consistent and in bigger quantities. So that's how precision fermentation started to be developed to produce these ingredients. And now this application has been expanded to produce ingredients that we could use in, in food production. And what are the main drivers behind cell ag? Like, I know you guys mentioned sustainability a little bit. Like, why is this even a thing, basically? One of the drivers, for example, is climate change. And because lately there has been a lot of studies made showing that conventional agricultural or animal farming is one of the main contributors to greenhouse gas emissions. So with cellular agriculture, it has a potential, and I would say highlight the word potential, because there's still a lot of studies that need to be done to actually ensure that this new technology is going to be better. But preliminary studies have shown that it can decrease greenhouse gas emission production of meat, for example. And it also, some other studies have also shown that it is possible to use less land or less water. But again, all these studies have been doing at smaller scale, and we still need to work more to actually get that evidence when this technology starts scaling up. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, even if you think of the big industrial farms that just, they can take up so much land and so many resources and they have to be in specific places in the world. I know we might get into that a little bit more later on, but it, it makes sense for why those would be kind of some key drivers for sure. And I guess one of the other elements that is attached to that is just that the population is still increasing and the land and the water, the resources that we have are not going to continue increasing in the same they are not going to increase as the population increases. So we need to start finding alternatives to continue producing the food that we need, but without really using more of the resources that we have. 
So just kind of touching on what you just mentioned there regarding how cellular agriculture can be a benefit to climate change and solving a lot of issues relating to sustainability. Can you explain a little bit further in detail in what ways cellular agriculture can mitigate some of the environmental impacts? Yeah, sure. People in the field like to talk a lot about this like feed conversion ratio of like when you're talking about a cow, how much do you need to feed that cow and what's the climate impacts of those inputs basically to the amount of food that you get out of. So the hypothesis is that that might be lower in this field, but it's important to think about the fact that we still have inputs. We're still probably growing crops to be able to feed these cells to be able to produce meat. But the idea is that potentially take less of those inputs to produce the same amount of meat. Less time overall, some estimates have said, whereas it takes months to years to grow an animal, this could be done in weeks to months. So less of those inputs could equal less climate impacts. But also there's some interesting, like kind of you flip it on the other side, with manufacturing in this way, you use a lot of power. So you may not be having methane emissions from a cow, but you might have carbon emissions from the power production used to power these facilities. So then renewable energy becomes really important for actually making these facilities better than their animal counterparts. So that's why it gets to be kind of complex, but the idea being that the inputs that you need power crops to to produce these products would be less than oh and water another big one all those would be lower than you would need to grow it using an animal and i guess another claims that it's been done in terms of benefits from cell life is that theoretically you can produce the food that you want anywhere in the world let's say so it's going to be completely climate independent because you are going to be growing these foods in closed spaces but again everything will really depend on the accessibility to the inputs that you need to the energy sources and to the scale of production that you want to use for this yeah and i like the idea that it's not just a technology for combating climate change it's also a technology for a climate change world so we're already seeing massive number of animals needing to be slaughtered or like cold or just being lost to major weather events or um, huge uh, spread of disease, antibiotic resistant diseases through our livestock. So it's kind of on both both sides. It also is potentially less susceptible to some of these negative impacts we're seeing as the world changes from climate change. Climate change is not a future unknown. At this point, we know it's happening. So it can help on both ends of that. Yeah, definitely. I guess we're aware of the fires that we had in Canada uh, this this year, or also floods that we've been seeing, and that is affecting already even the, the agricultural sector. So with these technologies, it could help us mitigate some of that consequences from climate change. I think like one question I have is, you know, it can be really hard to get consumers to make changes in their diet. So for example, taking somebody who's normally used to eating meat regularly in a diet and getting them to change their habits so that now they're consuming primarily non-meat products or beyond meat products or things like that. How does cellular agriculture provide a solution that people can still kind of have meat and not have to change their diet, but yet this can kind of transform the way that it's produced so that it's more sustainable? Yeah, that's kind of the idea. I mean, if we could convince people to switch over to plant-based diets, this field would absolutely not be needed. In almost every regard, a plant-based diet is better than cultured meat. But in truth, we've been telling people to move towards plant-based diets for over 50 years and have seen only an increase in in meat consumption. So that is kind of the idea is that in parallel to working on improved plant-based meat alternatives, this could provide the real meat taste texture 
nutrition that consumers are looking for with lower impacts. That's kind of the thesis. And, if, and I also think it's important to think about, we probably don't want every plant-based vegetarian to switch over to cultured meat. At least it's looking like now all the impacts of the footprint of a plant-based diet is still lower. Like this is really geared towards those consumers who just really want meat products, which there's nothing wrong with meat is really culturally important to a lot of people. It's a really key component of our diets. There's kind of some, some food justice aspects of this here, not just telling people, hey, you have to switch your diet to something lower impact. Rather than that, so put some solutions out there that get at the same culinary expectations people are looking for with a lower impact. I think that makes a lot of sense because I don't know that I would necessarily want to go to primarily a vegetarian diet either, but I think you know having an option like this is definitely helpful because there, like you said, there's certain meals or cultural things or whatever that it's going to be hard to replace those with something other than, you know, your typical ingredients. So I think that's great. Yeah. I would say coming from Mexico, I cannot imagine having my tacos without meat. For me, meat is an important aspect of, of my diet. And I personally have been trying to reduce meat consumption just because I'm aware of the implications of that. So when I'm in Canada, it's easier for me to switch my diet. But for example, when I'm in Mexico, it's really hard for me to do that. There's a cultural aspect, there's traditions, there's personal beliefs as well uh, that are involving what we eat. And I think because of that, it's important to have a variety of options and possibilities for people to, to take what they want or what they need. And that's why we are so we're excited about cell, the possibilities of cellular agriculture. And we really wanted to make a technology that is accessible for everyone. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so kind of just piggybacking off of that. So from my understanding, you know, cellular agriculture can also tailor meat products to be healthier for the consumers. So on that note, are there any specific nutritional benefits or modifications that can be achieved through this approach, you know, in order to appeal to a consumer base? Yes, there's definitely a lot of potential for that, which is an exciting area. Certainly not guaranteed you could produce products that attempt to nutritionally and like compositionally mimic meat completely, but you could potentially tailor it. So one of the New Harvest Research Fellows did a really interesting study where they added beta carotene to, I believe it was beef cells. So it kind of lets you eat your meat and your carrots too. So I mean, that may not be like the perfect thing we go for first, but it's a great example of how you could tailor the nutrition of these products. But I think it gets at, are consumers interested in that or not? Which is an interesting question. But another example, you could say make beef that had less of the unhealthy fats or carcinogens that we know are in red meats, you could potentially tailor it, it that way. Or pork allergy, for example, is a common one. You could potentially tailor the meat such that it didn't have that protein that the consumers were allergic to. So there's a lot of opportunities here. You do often end up going into genetic engineering. And so it's an interesting question of whether or not consumers are interested in products that have been genetically engineered. Different industry stakeholders are taking different approaches on that. But I think the cool thing is to think about the breadth of potential opportunities that are available as this technology becomes a reality. I think that's really cool because when I think about, you know, different foods, even over the last, you know, 10, 20 years, how people have, you know, started adding in, you know, different vitamins or proteins into typical foods. Like even, you know, I think my wife brought home pancake mix the other day that had protein in it. And that's a simple thing compared to what we're talking about. But that ability to kind of augment the the food that we're normally used to and make it either healthier by adding 
like you said, carotene or some sort of vitamin to it, or even by reducing things like the the unhealthy fats or things that make the food that we love unhealthy for us. So I think that those are both really cool and intriguing aspects of this for me. <laughs> yeah, I agree completely. And, and different people have different thoughts in the field as to is this a complete replacement or not. But I think where a lot of people stand is that middle ground of it's, it's going to become another tool in the tool belt for food production. And I personally like to think of it as a tool that can allow us to relieve some of the pressure on the existing animal agriculture system, which has had to become more and more efficient to feed our population. And that efficiency in many ways has led to other impacts like climate impacts or animal welfare impacts and health impacts. And so if we can relieve some of that pressure so animals don't need to be raised in such intensive conditions, then we can see all remaining forms of animal agriculture be kind of that more idealized pasture raised, healthier for the ecosystem, healthier for the animals. So both can exist, but see a healthier version on both sides. I just, I just feel it's an important aspect because sometimes when we talk about cellular agriculture, uh, a lot of people ask, oh, so this is going to substitute or replace uh, conventional farming as we know it. And uh, I, I feel that that's not the, the whole objective of solar agriculture, but it's, it's actually one, one of the different uh, tools that we can have to make uh, a better food system. But what that looks like as far as that transition from the existing agricultural system to this one we're describing now is something that we need to look at. That People talk about just transition in the terms of regenerative, uh, uh, sorry, in terms of renewable energy. What does that look like um, in terms of food? So there are lots of people whose livelihoods rely on these industries and they're not going to disappear overnight. I think there's an initial backlash from conventional agriculture that we're trying to just steal their jobs tomorrow. And that's not true. I think we need to open more dialogues about what is the realistic timescale there and what can we do now to help with that transition so that we're not taking anyone's livelihoods. Yeah, I think it's more of a complement situation here where we need different of these tools to be used to actually improve things. And I guess it, it comes back to starting to think about these questions now before we actually hit a point where it's just there, the consequences are there, and we haven't made a plan to how to deal with that. So that's part of what we do also. And we're interested at New Harvest is to engage in those conversations and have these different voices tell us what also their concerns are so we can find ways in which we can mitigate the negative consequences. No, that's perfect. Yeah, thank you so much for that response. And I think that definitely, you know, prefaces the conversation a little bit more in terms of, you know, the overall 30,000 foot view when it comes to cellular agriculture and the varying difference of opinion within the industry when it comes to, you know, if it's removing the need for uh, industrial size agriculture farms or not. So kind of pivoting now a little bit further into the conversation, let's talk around, you know, some of the concerns around private investment into cellular agriculture. So, you know, private investment can introduce a lot of concerns into the process. And can you elaborate on how private investment may influence the direction and priorities of cellular agriculture research and development? Yeah, for sure. So we can start talking about how the field started to evolve. So we've seen a lot of VC 
that has invest has been investing on cellular agriculture because we haven't seen a lot of public funding going into this kind of research. So what we've been noticing is that a lot of the basic or the foundational research that is being happening in the field is being protected by IP or by trade secrets within the companies. So that has caused some sort of silo where there's not a lot of collaboration, a lot of transparency in these products are being developed. And it's also caused a lack of public data and evidence that other stakeholders can use to inform their decisions or make um, make actually their own criteria of what they think these products are. So that's part of what we've been seeing. And something that we think is concerning is that we are not building that foundational platform for creating a level playing field for other, for example, new companies that want to come into, into the field or for researchers that want to start developing other novel technologies or other novel products. So we are seeing that lack of public data or, for example, for regulators to use this information to think about that regulatory process or approval of these ingredients. So we've seen that lack of evidence, siloing of the field, cost because of these private investments. I was just going to build on that a bit and kind of as an example or to look at, if you think about other industries, other biotechnology industries, you usually have a lot of the initial work happening in academia where you've got a lot of foundational research, a lot of discourse on on different aspects of the technology. And so it's really interesting that this field did not have that first. And so because of that, as Jadira mentioned, every new company that comes in is basically starting from scrap on how to do this technology. And there are still major technological hurdles to be overcome before this technology is really feasible. So I've talked to companies, many companies that all realize they're all spinning their wheels on the same foundational science problems, but no one like wants to be the first to go out and share that information and their investors definitely don't encourage that. So many company representatives have kind of described it to me as like a prisoner's dilemma because of the way that that funding came early on. And we are now starting to see much more public funding. So I am optimistic, but the initial trajectory was interesting. Yeah, it definitely causes a lot of duplication of efforts. Because instead of having everyone one single conversation about a challenge that they are facing, everyone is trying to deal with it individually. So it's also, I feel it's also a waste of resources because a lot of those resources could be used to solve the issue altogether. Potentially, it could actually help to free some of that, of those resources of funding so that we could advance the field faster. And I think one of the risks we see to get at that part of the question or like the concerns that come from this is both the wasting of resources by duplication, but I think also that some of the frameworks and motivations when you're in a startup company are quite different from if you're in academic research. So we recently, or not recently anymore, published a piece in Nature Food on kind of the mission approach to this technology versus the market approach. And so I think there is a risk when so much of the R&D is happening in companies that there's such a market pressure to be the first one to market, to be on the forefront of the field, that that can change how you do that research. And I'm not saying every company is necessarily doing it in a bad way, but you just have to at least shed some light on the fact that those market pressures exist, especially in a really VC-heavy field. 
And I think that's where if we had more public funding coming into the field, it could support more of the mission-oriented goals that we are talking about, like sustainability, animal welfare, safety, rather than just focusing on making money out of renewable technology. So thank you guys for the you know explanation around the concerns related to private investment into cellular agriculture and the development of the infrastructure for the actual market. But let's uh, switch gears and talk about a little bit about the consumer concerns around cell egg. So you know one of the typical concerns is that consumers immediately assume that cell egg is just another plant-based alternative to meat. So can you describe the actual process of cell egg and what it actually is doing to cultivate the products that are being produced? Yes. Yeah, so as opposed to plant-based alternatives where you are looking at a variety of plant sources that can try to mimic meat and then mixing those together in cellular agriculture, you're actually taking the cells from the animal, at least in the case of cultured meat, you're going to take cells from an animal and grow those in a manufacturing facility to large numbers. And so those tanks are going to be growing up large numbers of those cells and then turning those cells into the cells we care about for meat, which is typically muscle and fat. You also, though, something interesting to think about is you might need to grow those cells on a material called a scaffold, and that might be plant-based. So you might actually be getting a hybrid product here where you might have some plant materials and some cellular materials, but the end goal would be to have actual meat cells from an animal. So when you talk about what customers are expecting, if they're expecting an alternative to meat, they may not expect actual meat cells in there. So going back to that example of a pork allergy, it becomes really important that consumers understand it's actually a pork cell that you are eating. So if you have an allergy to traditional pork, you will probably still have an allergy to cultured pork. Um, That's an important difference for consumers to think about. Yeah, I think a lot of it is, again, providing the information that consumers need and being transparent about the processes, making sure that the information that we put out there is truthful and is based on the evidence that we have. I would say maybe the first products are not going to be exactly what cut of meat will taste or look like, because again, the technology is evolving. And as Brie was saying, right now, there can be a combination of plant-based ingredients with cell culture meat cells or culture meat fats. So it's important to be clear to consumers that these products are going to be the first ones and that they are not 100% animal or won't contain 100% animal-derived ingredients. So all of that is important in my perspective, how we tell the consumers and the information that we put out there. Yeah, and also on the other technology, like we said, tell you that agriculture being this umbrella, on one side you have cell-based products that are meat, on the other side you have precision fermentation produced products, there you're producing something like milk. So you can actually buy this in the U.S. right now, you can buy ice cream that has whey in it that was produced from cellular agriculture, and that is not... A plant-based alternative, that is the actual protein that you would find in milk. And I think there's still a huge gap for consumers to understand that right now because they've had so many alternatives put in front of them to actually understand, no, that is actual cow's milk protein in that animal-free product. I think that's the strange part too, because thinking of like the next concern, I would probably fall in this next category is like, 
I think of, okay, this product that I'm consuming was grown in a lab. How do I know that the overall experience of eating this is going to be similar to meat? How do I know? It just seems kind of like a weird thing to say, I'm going to eat some sort of a food product that was not harvested in the same way that you're normally used to. And I know it's probably a mental game, but how do you guys overcome the consumer concerns around like the overall experience of eating a product that's not harvested like people would normally expect, if that makes sense? Yeah. And just to add, I think the reality is that initial consumer adoption is probably going to be a small subset of consumers that are pretty open to novel technologies. Like it's, I think, unrealistic to think that the first products that come out are going to be immediately taken up by just the average consumer that cares most about their finances and making sure they put tasty food on the table. I think that's an unrealistic expectation, but hopefully what we would see is that initial early adopters can kind of help normalize this idea for other consumers and with enough transparency around how the products are made and the safety valuations of them, we can gain consumer trust. Yeah, something important Brie mentioned is safety. I think safety is super important. It's something that we don't talk too much about, but it's crucial to the success of the industry as a whole. So ensuring that we have all the data, all the evidence to prove that these products are safe is also super important. And that's perfect because your background is in food safety. So maybe you can kind of talk to us a little bit about, you know, addressing some of the food safety concerns and what might those concerns be and and how can we address those around this, you know, cell ag. I really like talking about safety. And when I started looking into cellular agriculture, some So maybe like four years ago, safety was something that wasn't really talked about. It wasn't really a priority. And I would say there's still not a topic that comes out often in conversations, although I've realized that it's becoming more more important when we talk about research, for example. But there's a lot of things that we need to consider when thinking about novel products. So making sure that we have all the, as I was saying, all the data that we need to ensure that they are safe. We have the methodologies that we need to assess these products because there's going to be novel ingredients or novel inputs or things that we haven't really used before for human consumption, like the ingredients in the growth media. Some of those ingredients haven't been used for production before. So we need to make sure that we have the evidence to show that they are safe. Yeah. And just kind of piggybacking off of that, can you explain some of the current regulatory measures that are in place today as sort of a check and balance system to ensure that cellular agriculture products are you know, safe for consumption and for a, a wide consumer base? Yeah, that's a pretty interesting topic because the regulations or the standards that we have are going are gonna to vary based on the country. So each country will have it, its own regulatory framework where we've seen that these products have been approved uh, is in Singapore and in the U.S. And Brie can talk, do you want to talk about the U.S. part? The U.S. regulatory system is actually kind of interesting because it's regulated by both the FDA and the USDA. So the reason for that really is because in the U.S., the FDA typically regulates the type of processes that you see early on here. So that's where the process really mimics the pharmaceutical industry. So you have cell culture, cell culture media, all of those pieces might have genetic engineering of the cells, like all all of that is much more in the jurisdiction of the FDA to regulate because that's their bread and butter from the pharmaceutical industry. And then once you get to the end product and you're taking it out of the bioreactor and you're processing it into a food product, it looks pretty similar to the traditional 
meat processing facility, and that's what the USDA typically regulates. And so what we see in the U.S. is actually a handoff of regulatory oversight from the FDA in those early stages to the point of harvest, then it's overseen by the USDA. Right now, the way this looks is actually very much on a case-by-case basis. And we heard this from a lot of regulators in our recent work, talking to regulators from around the world, that because we don't have standards yet, and the industry is so rapidly evolving, that early stage can't be like a really straightforward step-by-step check all your boxes. What actually happens in the U.S. is that the company provides the FDA with what it believes is the proof that its products are safe and the testing it's done to show that. And then the FDA looks through it and goes back to the company with questions, any concerns they have. And then the company provides more information and you get that back and forth until the FDA feels like it doesn't have any more questions. That actually what it's called is a no questions asked letter. And so I think that really illustrates how early this field is. And regulators have told us that having standards could really expedite that process, but they also don't want to limit innovation at this stage. So for now, they'll go through this extraordinarily lengthy process of back and forth because that's what the industry needs. And I guess that brings us back to the topic of foundational research or open research that we need, because I feel that when we think about other for example, approval processes or how international organizations work as well, is by gathering evidence from different experts in different countries, all the public available information that they can access to make a decision of a specific food ingredient or end product. And right now with with cellular agriculture, we still don't have that pool of public data or evidence out there that can help or support some of these decision-making processes. Currently, as Brie was saying, in the U.S., they rely on the information that the company provides to them. But it would be much better if we had third-party information out there that is independent from the company to actually use it as support for these decision-making processes. Sounds like we're still so early in the process, right? Like it's such a new technology that a lot still has to be developed and like you were saying, the, the regulatory bodies are trying not to overregulate right now because they're trying to just get some innovation going and get some things to a, a more of a mature state before they really start to look at regulations, if I'm understanding correctly. Yes, that's correct. Because right now, whose process do you pick? There's no norm that's evolved amongst the field yet. What do you think, like, when you look at a timeline, this might not be something you can answer, but what sort of timeline do you see for this technology to mature to where it's uh, more of a stable, more of a stable thing that can actually be ready to go to market on a mass scale? I think that is going to be entirely dependent on whether or not the field agrees to any sort of openness and transparency and collaboration around safety. Because if we don't, I think it's going to move really slowly if everything continues to be so siloed. But if we can start to put some of this information out openly, like Judir was talking about, I think we will see it accelerate much faster. Yeah. And as we were mentioning before, it's about of how can we make the most of the resources that we have? And right now, for example, something that we internally we've been discussing a lot is this idea of having shared facilities. So having spaces where companies can, companies and academics can work together to solve some of the challenges, the scale up challenges that they are facing. 
instead of companies, again, working in siloed, why can't we just create a space where these resources can be shared in a way? There's a lot of complexity and nuance when we talk about that because there's issues about around IP and around what can be shared and what can not be shared. But definitely there's opportunities to create novel models that could help speed the innovation process in cellular agriculture. And hopefully that's why organizations like New Harvest are there is to start bringing that conversation out into the forefront and for in a more of a collaborative way to start working on this instead of just keeping everything so isolated. To just briefly circle back to the consumer side as well, I think that openness is not just helpful for accelerating the field, but really for consumer acceptance too, because especially with the way that the regulatory process goes right now, at least in the US, you have that back and forth of question and answer with the FDA and the company, but, and they do put, it's very good of the, of the FDA to put a lot of that out publicly, but obviously for IP concerns, not everything can be, can be out there publicly. So you end up with the public has to trust that the FDA has sufficiently vetted these products for safety. And, you know, I don't think the U.S. has the highest level of trust in public agencies right now. So we kind of have an interesting chicken and egg there, too. And so I think more transparency across the board can help with that piece as well. Yeah, and I think that's something that has been discussed a lot in the food industry. And I think with solar agriculture, we have an opportunity to do things differently, especially because of the uniqueness of the technology. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And and how can, like, if we go to, you know, what do we want our listeners to do? Like, how can people get involved in this and how can people help out? What sort of call to action do we have for people who are listening that are interested in this topic and, and think that they have a place or a part to play in cell ag? Yeah, I guess there's a call for action in so many different spaces. Like for students that are looking for what's their next step, I think there's a lot of opportunities for creating a, a talent pipeline for solar agriculture. Consumers as well, asking questions, being involved, making sure that we can we can encourage transparency in the industry and we can encourage the public availability of information out there, making sure that the resources or the information that people read are come from reliable sources as well. That's really important. Supporting initiatives that promote openness, again, of, of research. Definitely all of those. I think also if you're an investor ensuring that you are looking for these types of long-term impacts and encouraging that type of dialogue. There's a lot of hype around the field right now that this is a silver bullet and products are going to be here tomorrow. And, and I think understanding that this is going to take time, especially to do it right, is so important and helping to encourage those conversations to happen so we can break out of this prisoner's dilemma. Yeah. And I would say also, even for players in the conventional ag or food industry space, like get engaged in those conversations. As New Harvest, we're always open to receiving any feedback, receiving any sort of questions that people have. And we're also really interested in listening to what others have to say about the field. So again, being part of those conversations and mentioning or talking about their concerns are super important as well. Yeah, to circle back to the beginning, talk about the negatives, not in the sense of what we see now, which is like 100% hype or 100% criticism. Let's talk about the negatives in a balanced way where we can actually have discussion around them. And be open, be open to all the different ideas and thoughts that people have about that technology. I think that's also important. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, having a nuanced position on the matter is definitely what's going to yield the greatest possible success when it comes to the, you know, advancement and propagation of cellular agriculture. I agree. So that involves, you know, talking about everything instead of just a, you know, binary black and white type of mode of thinking. Awesome. So what additional resources does New Harvest have for our audience to be directed towards to whether it be, you know, a, a blog or white paper, or a TED talk, could you direct our audience to uh, some resources? Yeah, I would definitely suggest our Race to Mission article. I think that that summarizes a lot of the things that we discussed today and some of the things that we really would like to see in the cellular agriculture, the mission goals that we have established. We also have our executive director, Dita, now some TED Talk that I think could be a really great opportunity. And I'm seeing Brie typing some of the other ones. Oh, the Australian Pathways. That's a good one for people that want to enter the field, but I let her chime in with that. Yeah, to add a couple for maybe younger or early career people looking getting into this field, there's a great website called What is Cultured Meat that I just kind of gives more background than we had time to talk to now in, in the technology. Also, the, another nonprofit, Cellular Agriculture Australia, has put together an amazing resource called Pathways into Cellular Agriculture, and that goes through really what are some of the like fields of study that can apply to this. And students I talk to are constantly amazed at how big that is. They think, oh, I have to specifically go into tissue engineering or specifically go into biotechnology to study this. It's like, no, we need all hands on deck. We need so many diverse fields of study to help support this field. And then it talks a bit about the types of majors you can do. And obviously there's a university focus in Australia, but the rest of the resources are really globally applicable. And I would add up one that just came to mind that we just announced. It's a solar agriculture book. And a big shout out to the editors that did an amazing job of putting together that table of content. Is It covers from technical perspectives all the way to the social implications, some of the things that we talked today, IP regulations. It's really, really broad. So it would be a great tool for anyone that wants to either start on the field or has already some knowledge in the field or wants to dive uh, deeper into some of the topics. So that's really great. It has been edited by Dr. Evan Fraser, Dr. Leonard Newman, Dr. Ricky Jara, and Dr. David Kaplan. So an amazing team of experts. I think that's great. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast today. It was really eye-opening for me to learn a lot about cellular agriculture. Like I'll admit that I haven't heard a lot about it. So it was neat to just kind of hear what's going on and what you guys are doing to help that industry grow. And I'm just kind of looking forward to seeing, you know, where this takes off over the next several years. So yeah, we really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks again, guys. It was an absolute pleasure to have you both on the podcast with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to chat about it.